It was in 1998 that I traveled to Cali, Colombia, had an opportunity to go with a missionary that was there by the name of David Overmeyer. We'd spent a lot of times visiting with people in different locations. We went to a penthouse, and it was the home of a, an executive for Colgate. It was a pretty expensive place that looked over the city. It was at night. We were waiting for him to arrive, but his lovely young wife, bride, was there, and I was trying to delay and kind of hold things out until the husband showed up so we could engage in a conversation. I anticipated it would go on for some time, and she said to me as soon as we had calmed down and been greeted and been seated down, she goes, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what's going on in my life, but I can tell you this. I'm searching for God I'm searching for him, but I just can't find him. That was my turn to respond. And I said, well, dear lady, I have news for you. The truth is, the Bible says that no one seeks after God. No one searches for them. There may be a desire in you, an impulse in you to find some sense of peace or some sense of meaning in your life. But basically, deep down inside, we're rebels against God. We've turned against God. We've fled from God. We are in our sins, and as a result, we're alienated from God, and we seek to find answers to the meaninglessness of our life and the lack of righteousness that we know resides within us in our own way and by our own inventions, and that's our true situation. We are not searching for God. We're not. Now, God's Spirit may be prompting you and pushing Him toward yourself, but it's God who's doing that because the Bible says that the Spirit is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. But here's the good news. Although you are not searching for God, God is searching for you. God is not lost, but you are. And God is searching for you and seeking for you. And that's why Jesus is coming to the earth. This was God come in the flesh. And Jesus declared that he'd come to seek and to save those who are lost. He's searching for you, and he's searching for you in order that in finding you might bring you his salvation. And his salvation for you was accomplished when he lived the righteous life you cannot live, and he died the death you don't want to die. He suffered the punishment for your sins, and he rose again from the grave, demonstrating that his payment for your sins was complete and enough for you. And if you recognize he's looking for you, and you'll turn from your sins and your own self-pursuits, and you'll turn to him, and you'll believe and trust in him, Today, you can be forgiven. You can be completely forgiven. Oh, she answered, then please tell me. Please explain to me more clearly how it is that I may help God find me. (laughs) You just turn around. You just turn around to the Lord Jesus and recognize all he's done and you believe and trust in him completely. And so there in that home, she prayed to give her life to the Lord Jesus. This was a wonderful moment. This was an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we want to do. This is what Paul wanted to do when he came to Rome. He wanted to bring the gospel to the believers that were in Rome so that they might flourish in all the benefits of that gospel. And then with them, he wanted to take them to take that gospel to others who had not heard it and not had that gospel declared for them. So he says in verse 15 of Romans chapter 1, I am ready, I am ready, I am prepared to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He knows that if he can lead them to flourish in that gospel, that he will work with them to bring the gospel to other individuals and nothing will cause you to flourish even more in the gospel than sharing it with somebody else, than bringing it to somebody else. And so this was his great desire. This was his great design. And Paul now says that his readiness to preach the gospel in verse 16 is a reflection of the fact that he is proud of the gospel. He has 
overcome the temptation that may have been there and that is there in so many individuals to be ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He is boasting in the gospel. He is proud of the gospel. And this boast in the gospel and this great pride in the gospel is rooted in his knowledge of its power. He knows the power of the gospel by way of the tremendous change that it brought into his own life. It's the same way in which you might know the power of the gospel. It's not to be known simply because you read the treatises and the theological points that God reveals to us. But when you read those truths and you hear those truths, for the person who is not a believer, they're reading what can be done for them, what God can do for them. But for the believer, they're reading what God has done for them and what by faith they're to live in and embrace. They're also reading a confirmation of an experience that they've had in Jesus Christ. They're reading an explanation for the joy and the release and the unburdening that they experienced in the moment and the hour in which they turned to the Lord Jesus and trusted and believed in Him. And in that moment, like Paul, they receive a rebirth and they receive reconciliation and they receive redemption and they, above all, receive a righteousness that they did not produce, but that God produced and worked in them by His own power becomes a moment in which you know that you're forgiven. Just the other day, someone was sharing with me a testimony. It was a testimony of a Muslim jihadist who had spent his life learning to hate and teaching others to hate and to kill. He was a part of a jihadist group that trained individuals to be suicide bombers in their own homes and in their own households if they found that those in the household were not militant enough and committed enough to Allah. One day, though, he refused to follow the commands of his jihadist leader to put to death two other Muslim individuals because he saw these Muslim individuals crying out to Allah for mercy. He thought, we can't, we can't kill them. They're crying out to Allah for mercy. But the jihadist leader insisted he wouldn't do it. The two men were dispatched anyway, but now he became a target for being dispatched as well. And so he had to flee for his life. He fled from Iraq where he lived, and he fled to Iran. And there he eventually enrolled in a school studying art of all things. And in the art school, he saw a work of art in which written in Arabic was the phrase, God is love. And he couldn't understand that this was a concept he had never heard before. God is love. And so he, he asked one of the students, where did this message, what does this mean? And the student said that that was from actually the New Testament or from the Christian Bible. And it was a declaration that was found in their Bible or their holy books and then he asked if he could get his hand on one of those books. And so he was able to acquire a Bible and he began to read it. And he began to read the Gospels over again and again. And as he read the words of the Gospels, he knew, he knew that what he was reading was the truth. And through that, he was wonderfully brought to complete faith in Jesus Christ. And his life immediately changed. He immediately had birthed within him a love for all people something that he had not known before. He began to search out for somebody who would baptize him, and nobody would because everybody was fearful of him and afraid to baptize him. Finally, he found one Catholic priest that agreed to baptize him. That was good enough for him because he was baptized by that individual. Now today, he's a fearless evangelist preaching the gospel of those who sought his death. Now, that's an example of knowing the gospel and the power of the gospel by experience. Interesting enough, that testimony of that man is, it mirrors to a large extent the testimony of Paul, does it not? A man who was 
trying to prove his religious commitment to God with hatred and persecution and met God and was transformed by God and had birthed in him a love for all people that he had never known prior to that moment. We're going to make some observations more about this power of the gospel. And the first observation I want to make here is this very statement, the gospel is the power of God. Paul says this. He doesn't say that the gospel contains information that accesses the power of God or that through the gospel you're brought to principles that release God's power in your life. Paul says the gospel itself, the message itself is the power of God unto salvation. That just as God spoke and his words brought out of nothing life in creating all things, the spoken, expressed word of the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals or relays the power of God in such a way that it brings forth a creative act. It brings forth a revelatory act that changes lives and transforms them. It's the power that comes to those who hear it and believe it, and it's released in their life. It's the power that actually comes to people who don't believe it, but in hearing it, they believe it. The power of God is released upon them, moving them from unbelief to belief. There's an application for us right here, right off the bat, and it's a very encouraging application. It's this. This means... You don't have to become a great apologist or a great communicator who knows how to maneuver people by your influences and by your great arguments to belief in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. You can read any number of books or how-to books on evangelism, and if you read them, you'll find out that oftentimes they're treatises on the personality of the author of the book. The author is telling you how to share the gospel in the way that he shares the gospel because it comports with his personality and his nature and the way he is. And here's how you ought to do it. And oftentimes when you read those books, instead of being emboldened, you just feel like, man, I am not like this person. I can't do it. This is far from me. Well, here's the good news. The power of evangelism to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel is not found in a strategy it's not found in the personal gifting of any individual. It is found in the gospel itself. It means that all your well-thought-out and crafted use of appealing and acceptable terminology to somehow curry favor from those you're talking to is not essential for the power of the gospel. It means all of your clanging and banging and harsh words that you say trying to confront them and battle them and knock them down is not essential for the receiving and understanding the Gospels. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he didn't come to people with persuasive words of human wisdom, but that he came to them with the word of the Gospel alone. It means that you can actually be quite pathetic in your appearance, quite pathetic in your presentation, and that as long as you tell someone the clear good news of the Gospel, it still has great power to change their lives. Paul said that when he came to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 again, that he came among them with fear and trembling. It's not necessarily the picture of a person who's bearing great, powerful influence. There's an apocryphal account that was written about 100 years or 120 years after the life of Paul that is giving us a picture of what Paul looked like. And we might assume that this person, because the word is still out there and the descriptions of Paul are still out there, you know, they didn't take pictures of individuals, but they gave verbal descriptions that were quite accurate. And you have this verbal description of what Paul looked like. He was bald, and he was short, and he was bow-legged, and he had a unibrow. He was stocky. He had bad eyesight and a big nose. And so there you go. 
You've got a bald, unibrowed, short, stocky, bow-legged, big-nosed, bad eyesight, shaking, trembling individual comes before you, not using any kind of proper fancy words. Paul says, that's how I came to you. And he said, I came to you in the power of the Spirit. Where'd it come from? It wasn't in his presentation. It wasn't in his appearance. It was in the gospel itself. The very way that Paul was able to come change people's lives, you can change people's lives. You can make the gospel known and speak it to a person, and just that word in itself, in its message, carries to the person you're speaking to a power that comes from God and not from yourself and from your abilities. Do you believe that? Can you imagine that if that's true? Imagine what a weapon you have to tear down spiritual barriers and walls and lives that can be changed. One of the great stories, I remember, I'm going to get this wrong, but my parents were pastors in Skykomish, Washington, and, and not far from where they lived, friends had like a little retreat that was busy during the summertime. People from back east used to come and stay at their retreat during the summertime. They had a gentleman who came out from the east, and he was a teacher, and he was spending his three months of vacation at this site, this place. Also, in this retreat that they had set up, they had a young man who was mentally handicapped, and this young man was sharing a room with the man, the teacher, because it was all that they had left for him. And so they had a mentally handicapped young man who was doing little chores, and they were taking care of him, and he lived with his teacher. But this little mentally handicapped man also believed in Jesus and prayed to him. And he knew the simple expressions of the gospel. And by the end of that summer, that teacher invited Christ to come in his life and be a savior because of the witness of that mentally handicapped young man. It wasn't in the power of that young man. It was the gospel that's powerful, tremendously powerful. The simplest and seemingly least persuasive person can bear great evangelistic fruit if they will only tell others in simple words the gospel. The gospel. I'll give you a little recommendation. Uh, just to make it simple for you. Maybe you get one of those little bracelets. Have you ever seen it? They've got the different colors on it. That you can wear that share the gospel with somebody in simple little expression. The black expresses the sin that we've committed against God. The red expresses the blood that the Lord Jesus shed, dying for our sins. The white is how he cleanses us and washes us completely. The green expresses how he wants us to grow and develop. The gold expresses the glory in the heaven that he's planning for us. Just a simple little thing, a simple little guide. You use it in daily vacation Bible school for little children. It's all you need to know is the gospel well enough to share it with a little child. It has power. It has tremendous power. And then you've got to share it with others. And you've got to believe that it's not in your performance. It's not in your expressions. It's in the gospel itself. That's what he says. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Here's another observation. Paul is squaring off against and boasting in this statement against Rome itself. He's writing those at the capital of the Roman Empire. And if there's one thing the people of Rome knew, they knew that this was the center of world power. The Roman Empire's history is a history of conquest and battle and expanding power. They had gathered together the, the wisdom of all the ancient world and they'd drawn it together into a pragmatic implementation of power and they'd imposed it on one kingdom after another kingdom so that the Greeks fell before them, the Carthaginians fell before them, the Gauls fell before them, and on and on and on and on. Rome was above everything an iron fist that had grabbed hold of all the nations. 
Paul is saying in the presence of this great power, and they knew the word power, that there was a power that was greater than the power of Rome. That with all the power that Rome had, and with all the power that Rome had expressed, it had no power to bring salvation to a single soul or to save one single individual. This power belonged to the gospel of Jesus Christ and God alone. And get this. Our lost situation and sin is so deep and dire that no power on earth can deliver us from it. In fact, for us to be saved, God has to release upon us his own great power in the gospel. Salvation is not a small thing. It's not a trifle. It is the expression of God's power brought to bear in the heart and soul of a man. The Greeks with all their philosophies, the Jews with all their laws, with all the applications of their philosophy, with all the implementation of their laws, had accomplished the salvation of not one single human being in all of the human race. For that to happen, the power of God had to be released. And that's where the gospel is. Today, we're getting ready to celebrate the 4th of July and the birth of our nation. And it's right for us to celebrate our nation, and we should be thankful for it. We're also concerned with where our nation is heading. And we rightly can say that God has raised it up in a wonderful way to be a force of good throughout the nation with all our flaws and with all our problems. God has used our nation in a wonderful way. But in all that our nation has done to benefit the nations of the earth, and to be a blessing to the nations of our earth, it has not brought salvation to one single person on the face of this earth. It can't. That's done in, by the gospel alone. What does it tell us? That our allegiance above everything else has to be to this gospel. It's the gospel that we are to, above everything else, swear our allegiance to. Here's a third observation. Paul is going to unfold what he means by the word salvation. What I want you to note here is that this idea or concept of salvation or being saved is not a hard concept to grasp. Its meaning is to some extent known by everyone. It doesn't matter what culture you go into, where you might travel on the earth. When you get to this idea of speaking about, use whatever their language is, they all know what salvation means. They all know what it means because salvation basically means to be rescued from disease or death or destruction. And its emphasis is not only on being rescued from something, but it's also an emphasis on the hands that reach out to draw you into the rescue. It's the thing that rescues you. And they know that every nation knows this. I actually think the reason that we understand the concept of salvation so well is because it really is quite a childlike concept. It's something that is known by children. In fact, if you think about it, when you were a little child, every single day was a day of rescue. Every single day was a day of salvation. You were rescued from an all-consuming hunger that was about ready to destroy you, and you screamed at the top of your lungs because if you didn't get food, you were going to die, and your mother took you and nursed you, and you were rescued every day by her, and and you were in calamitous places where you were hurtling through space and falling and your father's arm reached out to grab you and you were rescued. And as a little boy, I, I knew what it was like to be lost multiple times and I knew what it was like to be found multiple times. And I'll tell you, the being lost part was horrible. The being found part was wonderful. child knows these concepts. Their very existence demands daily saviors to rescue them. And in all this, God is preparing their hearts for an ultimate salvation, from an ultimate fall, to feed an ultimate hunger, and to bring you 
in the arms of the ultimate Savior. It's not hard to understand. It's a part of life. And that salvation is being pressed upon us as well by the Holy Spirit who is preparing us. That Holy Spirit is convincing us of our sin and He's convincing us of our lack of righteousness and He's convincing us of impending judgment as a result. And these things stir within us a recognition of our need, our need to be saved. William Hendrickson gives us a brief description of what salvation is and what Paul is going to reveal to us and how Paul brings and helps us to consider what salvation is. And he's going to give us the negative side and he's going to give us the positive side. And here's the negative side. And we should know all these things, but this is how we refresh ourselves in the gospel. The deliverance that God brings us or saves us to is a a deliverance negatively from a rescue from the guilt of sin. The guilt of sin. We all know this. We know times when we felt guilty. We've all had the little voice that says inside of us, you did it, you did it, you did it. You know it. And God rescues us from that guilt, but it's not just guilt before ourselves. It's not guilt standing before our conscience. It's a guilt that's indicated and spoken to us by God the Spirit himself, who's making known to us our sin. And God rescues us from our guilt, but he not only rescues us from our guilt, he rescues us from the very pollution of sin. He washes our conscience so we're free, although the fact still stands of the sins we've committed. We don't bear, in a sense, its defilement anymore. It's removed from us. It doesn't weigh upon our conscience. This is a wonderful thing. There are individuals who have created some great sin, and maybe they've experienced some resolution, but it always weighs against them with profound and tremendous regret. When you hear an individual tell you that they have no regrets in their life, they're lying. Either that or they're sociopaths, right? Something's wrong. I know that, but this is the tremendous thing. God can come and he can wash us and cleanse us and he can forgive us. And in that moment, there's a memory of the sin, but instead of this great profound sense of regret or a great sense that there's this unfilled space in our life or this outstanding defilement in our life, there's a sense of great rejoicing. So when Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, he's not saying it beating his breast anymore. He's saying, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. But he's not saying, oh, God, be merciful to me because God has been merciful to him and God has forgiven him. The thought of it only caused him to rejoice that he's been delivered and released from the condemnation of that sin so that he can write later, there is no condemnation, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's being delivered from the pollution and the defilement of sin. And then there's the rescue from the slavery of sin. Sin takes a hold of us and it doesn't let us go. It gets a hold of us and it works within us and it puts its tendril around our hearts. I spoke to a young man some years back who shared how he had got engaged in a certain sin in his life and he was able to manage that sin for a number of years, but then all of a sudden everything turned on him and the sin that he was managing and it was somehow working for him began to work against him and took control of him. And then he had no power to get free from it, none whatsoever. Well, that's a picture of what sin does. The Bible says that the God of this age also holds us in chains because he holds us by the power of our own sins. And he uses it to manipulate us and control us and bring us into bondage. And not all of your promises to be better the next time, not all of your efforts will ultimately free you from the chains of your sin, but... You're rescued from the chains, the bondage of your sin. You're also rescued from its punishment. That punishment is described to us in the Bible. It's 
A punishment of alienation from God. Our sins separate us from God. So Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's a picture of those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the spiritual condition of all people. Their sin has created upon them a separation from God. So we're delivered from the punishment of sin. And the first punishment is alienation from God. And then we're delivered from the wrath of God against sin. His antagonism towards sin. And We might say that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But actually, the Bible says that God kind of hates the sinner too. Sin has so embroiled itself and connected itself to him, it's so indelibly lit up into our lives and our souls and our very beings and our spirits that makes us the objects of his wrath. The Bible says that. It's a part of what sin brings to us. And when we're saved, God saves us, God delivers us from himself and his own wrath. The salvation also saves us from the punishment ultimately of unending, everlasting death and destruction that our sin brings upon us. Positively, this is what salvation does for us. It not only takes us and rescues us from these things, but it rescues us into something. It rescues us into a state of complete righteousness. We are declared right before God. You'll never be able to put yourself right by all the rules that you follow by all the laws that you obey, by all the times you attend church, by all the singing that you offer, no matter how loud you sing, by all the genuflecting and prayers that you make, and none of it will make you righteous, not in one way. But God can put you right because he wants to give to you the credit of the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he wants to clothe you and make a possessor of that righteousness. So he clothes you with all of his goodness, and you stand before him right, right with God. And then it's saved unto holiness God not only makes you right, but God sets you apart and he infuses you with his own power and life so that you can rise above the challenges and you can rise above the frailty of your own flesh and the temptations of the enemy to live a life that honors him and glorifies him. And and then God not only saves you into holiness, but he saves you to a state of freedom. In Galatians 5.1, Paul says of the Christian that we're to stand fast, therefore, in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. So we're no longer bound to live on the trajectory that we were living on before. We are now free to worship God and live for God and glorify God. And we're released from the bondage that we're held to by Satan himself and the bondage that we're laid to by the influences of other people. Paul said in another place, I'm free from all men. Their influence is not what guides me and directs me. We're even free from the frailty of our own flesh because Jesus would live within us the vitality of his own life. And he would express and he would lead us to fulfill the very purposes that God made us for when we were created and we were made. And instead of punishment, we're saved into a state of blessedness. That's the last thing. So we're into a state of righteousness and a state of holiness, into a state of freedom and to a state of blessedness. And that blessedness is instead of alienation from God, we have fellowship with God. Instead of wrath from God, we experience the love of God. Instead of eternal and everlasting death, we're brought into a gain of everlasting Life. That's salvation. That's what God gives us. It's something that really is not so hard to comprehend or understand because the weight of all those other things are being pressed upon individuals by the Spirit of God. Let's look at two more things here. The fourth observation is simply this. This power of God, this gospel power we're reading here in this text can save anyone. It can save anyone. The gospel alone actually must save anyone, even the Jew and even the Greek. And that's why it says first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. There was a bit of a pecking order in that day and age. At the very top of the heap of all the different national identities were the Greeks and the Jews. 
The Greeks had all the philosophers. The Greeks had all the best thinkers. The Greeks actually had an idea that it was from the soil of Greece that humans came to be and they came into existence. And so the Greeks felt themselves to be, in a sense, the epitome of everything that a human being should be. It all kind of dissipated. It all got a little worse the further and further you got away from the soil of Greece. And as further and further you got away from that place and that point of origin and the Jews countered that by pointing out that they were the chosen people of God. And they could point to their own lineage. And they could trace their way all the way back to Adam themselves. And they could trace their way back to Moses, the great prophet. And they had the laws, the great moral laws that should govern all people and all life. And so the Greek was proud of his philosophy and his standing and his origins. And the Jew was proud of his choosing and of his law. But none of the prophets with all that they had to pronounce and all the laws that were given to them and none of the philosophers with all their wisdom that they brought to bear brought salvation to any of them. It was powerless to save. That power to save resided in the gospel alone. Their sense of privilege and their self-aggrandizement before that privilege had not brought to them any part in salvation. Like the lowest slave in Rome, they were completely dependent on the gospel alone to save them, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's start there. All of you need to be saved by this gospel, Paul's saying. And here's the last observation. This power of God, this gospel power, as powerful as it is, cannot save anyone who does not believe in it. The gospel can save anyone who believes, and it can't save anyone who doesn't. The Greek and the Jew have little advantage over anyone else, therefore, because they can't boast in their powerful intellects. They can't boast in their powerful moral conduct in keeping the law. They, like the weakest and most sorry of sinners, have but one means of being touched by the power of the gospel, and that is they by faith must reach out with empty hand to take hold of it and touch it and believe it and embrace it, to trust. Otherwise, they're still lost. They're still in their sins. They're not saved. They're not saved. This faith is not the application of some intellectual ability then of the Greek. It's not the application or residing or resting in moral performance of the Jew. It's, it's the feeble hand stretched out in trust to take hold of Jesus. It is trust and hope in him alone as the final and one and only answer for our need of salvation. Some years ago, I was in Quito, Ecuador. I, I've shared this as a personal testament with anybody. Uh, Ignacio's wife is not here this morning. I was in Quito, Ecuador, and I was doing a training with over 500 pastors. At the end of it, we sent them to different parts of the city to engage just for a day or an afternoon and an evening in some just door-to-door evangelism, just some experience where we get them out going door-to-door and doing evangelism. So they, they dispersed by buses to different locations, and Maylene went with me. You all know Maylene. Maylene is about... Four foot eleven, five foot, five foot one, if she's in heels. And as we were going out, I made mention that in the evening we would invite the people that we went and visited to come to some open area and we'd do a little open air preaching. One of the pastors in our little group would have to preach. Well, none of them wanted to preach. Not one of them. All of them were too fearful to preach. So I turned to Maylene and I said, Maylene, you're going to have to do the preaching tonight. You're going to have to be the Deborah here. And you're going to have to preach. And so 
we went door to door in this community and we visited with a number of different individuals and that evening we came down to a setting we were on the side of Quito, Ecuador the sun was setting and there was a little a mercantile and in front of this mercantile that had a, one of those Dutch doors the top of the door was opened up and so there was a little light in the mercantile and Maylene was standing right in front of that Dutch door and the light was radiating from her it looked like she looked like a little angel there and then behind her, you could see the sun setting over the city of Quito and the lights coming in and this, like a bowl of diamonds. And it was a little bit of an amphitheater on the side of the hill. On the other side, there were some homes and they were pitched a little higher, but it created an amphitheater. People began to gather on the sidewalk on the other side of the street and on the street that was at an angle. It was so steep there. And people were leaning out the windows as Meline began to preach. It's the greatest sermon I ever heard. I don't even speak Spanish, but I knew what she was preaching. She stated what her text was. I found it. She was preaching on the woman who had an issue of blood in, Math, in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. And a woman who had gone to all kinds of physicians and couldn't find any help. I could tell that she was giving a list of all the doctors she went to and everywhere she went that the, none of them could help her and she didn't have any answer. And then she finally said, well, there's this great man, Jesus, who's coming and if, if I could just go near to him... And the crowd was so great she couldn't even get near to him. And then she thought, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, he'll cleanse me, he'll make me whole. And she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And she was immediately cleansed from this issue of blood that had alienated her from community and kept her from being a part of the community. And then she took that story and began to relate it to the spiritual need of the people. All your life you've known that you have sin in your life and that you're stained and that you're not right and you have its guilt and you've tried to find answers for it and so you've gone to this place and you've said I'll do this and I'll pray this prayer and I'll do this religious act and you've tried all kinds of things until you've given up and decided there's no hope for your life. You've tried everything you could to find a way to make up for your sin but it still remains. You're still filled with the disease and the contagion of sin and there's no answer for you but I'm telling you now the Lord Jesus is present. He's come, he's died for your sins, he's risen from the dead. Tonight, if you would, by a simple hand, reached out and trust, lay hold of the hem of his garment and believe that he's done everything necessary for your sins to be forgiven and be right with God, you can know his cleansing, you can know his life, and you know his forgiveness because the Bible says he is the great physician. He's the great physician. I've got to tell you, she preached a lot better than I did just now was in a very quiet and simple little voice going out sweetly over that community and as she was speaking you could see the tears beginning to form in the people nearby me you could see more and more bodies leaning out of the windows above us listening bodies hanging out the window in the mercantile building that was she was standing in front of she gave a little altar call for individuals to come reach out their hand in faith access the power of the gospel it was the very message that had power it wasn't the person wonderful as our little Maylene is as great an ability as God may invest in her it wasn't the person it wasn't the setting it wasn't the backlighting of that moment it was the power of the gospel it was the power of the gospel to save those who believe and speaking it simply, bring individuals to believe. It's come to us, and now it's resting in us, and it's a message that's been given to us. Let's share it with others. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, I would pray for every member of our body here present. 
I ask, dear God, that they might equip themselves with just a simple understanding of the gospel. That they might be prepared to speak it in the lives of those who would listen and offer it to those and live in it themselves. Lord, may we live in that gospel knowing that we're not saved by our intellectual powers. We're not saved by our moral duties. We're saved because with an empty hand, with no hope and no answer anywhere else, we took hold of the Savior's garments. We trusted Him alone for our salvation. We knew so little in that moment. We understood so little, but we knew He had all the answers. And oh, in that moment, life flowed to us at forgiveness. God, help us to articulate that message and that story to others so that we're ready to preach the gospel wherever He places. In Jesus' name.